Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Uh, Welcome. And we begin the readout tonight with the endless insurrection. The current Republican Party has allowed the delusions of a single individual, a disgraced, twice impeached, failed Florida blogger, to reveal what, frankly, has long been its one true ethos. That when Republicans lose, it can only be because of fraud. This didn't just start with Trump. Republicans believe the same thing about Bill Clinton's election and President Obama's. It's actually just a garden variety belief among not just Trumpists, but regular norm core Republicans, too, because of who votes for Democrats. Just think about it. In his lair, meanwhile, down in Mar-a-Lago, the infamous retiree is currently living in a alternate reality, appearing to genuinely believe that he won the election last year and that somehow any day now he's going to return in triumph to the White House. And Trump's delusion isn't fading with time. Instead, it's metastasizing as state-level Republicans use it to discredit the election in the eyes of their voters and as an excuse to put laws in place to try and ensure that Republicans can never lose elections again. The Washington Post reports that, like a mango Macbeth, Trump is relentlessly focused on the lie that the election was stolen and thinks bogus anti-democratic fraudits like the one underway in Arizona are going to prove it. He's also plotting similar magical thinking recounts in Pennsylvania and Georgia and apparently... He's taking his cues from, among others, Mike Lindell, the former drug addict and my pillow salesman who told the Daily Beast he probably inspired the idiotic belief that Trump could be reinstated in August. Another proponent of the delusion, a Pennsylvania state senator who recently visited the Arizona debacle and called it a model for his state in future elections. Republicans who ostensibly know better and who take oaths to defend the Constitution are also co-signing like Georgia Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who had displayed a hint of spine last fall, but who has now given in, welcoming a fakey recount in Fulton County because he's up for re-election and he needs the votes of the gullible Trump cultists who believe the big lie and have made it their new religion. And I can't believe I have to say this, but really, I kind of do. These states are not going to overturn the election. There was no fraud that rigged a Biden win. He just won more votes. But more importantly, there is no constitutional mechanism for a redo. We had one election. It's over. We have a president. His name is Joseph Robinette Biden. This weekend in North Carolina, the two sides of this Republican coin, the elections are only legit when Republicans win normies and the Trump is still president Lulu's are on a collision course ahead of a speech from you know who at Saturday's North Carolina GOP convention. He's texting supporters ahead of it, ahead of time, making it sound like he's still the president and needs their input. The problem is millions in the MAGA base actually believe him. And the only nuance between them and the regular old Republicans, as the Atlantic's Adam Serwer writes, is not whether election laws should be changed to better ensure Republican victory, but whether political violence is necessary to achieve that objective. The MAGA true believers showed they think so on January 6th. And with the disgraced former president's former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, an ex-general, mind you, calling for a coup before he said that he didn't, you have every right to be alarmed. 
as Representative Jason Crow and Chrissy Houlihan, both veterans, write in the magazine, let us be clear. This attack on democracy is as intentional as it is insidious. Michael Flynn's comments about a Myanmar-style coup are shocking only to those who haven't been paying attention. And with me now is Congressman Jason Crow of Colorado. And Congressman, you know, Adam Serwer has this brilliant piece that I recommend everyone read. I'm going to put it on my Twitter feed. But he makes the point that I think has been lost in all of the outrage and fear that we're all feeling over what happened on January 6th. But that the actual norm core Republican reaction to elections has always been that they're illegitimate because Republican, you know, Republican voters are real Americans and Democratic voters who are black and brown and younger and, you know, uh, unmarried women are basically just a bunch of fraudsters. So I wonder how we push back against what's really a dangerous movement when regular Republicans believe it, too. They just aren't necessarily backing violence to achieve victory, at least not all the time. Right. Yeah. So thanks for having me on, Joy. I mean, the, the, the simple answer to that is that we have to end the filibuster and pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. We just make it law. Right. We, we can stop uh, counting on people's good graces. We could stop counting on people having an epiphany and starting to do the right thing when they don't do the right thing over and over again. And we just actually make it law uh, and protect people's right to vote that way. That, that's the simple answer. But, yeah, this isn't random. Uh, as we wrote in our op-ed, it is intentional. It is insidious. There's a reason why people like Michael Flynn get up in, in front of a convention of conspiracy theorists in Texas, talks about a coup, and then he tries to walk it back afterwards. Sorry, the damage is already done. He did what he intended to do. We're beyond dog whistles here. They're just outright trying to undermine the elections. Uh, but at the same time, we also have a violent extremism movement that's expanding and spreading too. Well, and the thing that's frightening, I mean, Michael Flynn, obviously a former general who was, you know, he was drummed out, you know, on his ear, but he was is a former general. You've had a lot of these indictments that are coming through. We had another uh, person plead guilty recently in these indictments about the January 6th insurrection. A lot of these people are turning up to be military veterans. There were some uh, off-duty police there, but the military veterans in particular part of it. You yourself as a uh, as a military veteran, what do you make of the fact that this ethos has seeped into parts of the military? Because that means that this weirdo QAnonish belief is not just weird and dumb. It's actually dangerous. Yeah, well, first of all, I want to also make clear to folks that the vast, vast majority, I'm talking 99 plus percent of our servicemen and women are great people. They're some of the best people we have and uh, they they serve with integrity and honor. But, you know, one percent or less than one percent is too much. Uh, when we're talking yeah. about people in positions of public trust that are doing important work of our law enforcement or military, uh, this also is not an accident. You know, these these extremist groups uh, have actually targeted uh, the military recruitment in the military, targeted veterans because of the skill set that people have. Uh, they, they understand that um, when folks leave the military, that's a, that's a difficult transition to make. I actually made that transition. It was tough for me, too. Uh, you, you miss that camaraderie. You miss that kinship. Uh, that sense of purpose, and understand that some people are vulnerable and ripe for recruitment in some of these movements. Uh, so we have to make sure we're addressing that. And I'm working with my colleagues in the Armed Services Committee and the DOD to make sure that we're vetting people, that we're dealing with them when they're in uniform, that we're rooting out extremism, but we're also preventing our veterans from being preyed upon as well. 
Yeah. And you wrote in your op-ed that people, you know, who don't think this is real and dangerous aren't paying attention. I totally agree with you. It's kind of one of the premises now of this show. Uh, We're trying to hammer that home every night. Uh, President Biden has made it clear that he doesn't want to form a presidential level commission on January 6th. We still need, though, a a commission to get to the bottom of everything that happened and whether lawmakers were involved um, as well. Um, Do you think that Speaker Pelosi should impanel a sort of special, you know, blue ribbon commission? Should the Senate do it? What do you think should happen next? Well, I'm not ready yet, uh, Joy, to let the Republicans off the hook here. Uh, we got 54 votes last week on the um, the bipartisan commission. There were three other votes had they uh, been voting that we think we have. So we have to really look at, can we get three other votes? But we're not going to wait around forever. And we're not, again, going to uh, expect Mitch McConnell to wake up tomorrow and have an epiphany and try to do the right thing. So uh, let's try to keep uh, the pressure on the, the Republicans in the Senate. Uh, make sure they're trying to do the right thing. But if they don't, we're going to do what we always do. We're going to pick up in the House and we're going to find the truth. And there's a a variety of different mechanisms and tools available to us to do that. And we won't back down. So you think, do you think that something like a Watergate commission, because look, if Republicans uh, get involved, if they get on the bill, it probably have to be gutted so much that it would come out with nothing and they're still going to call it partisan. Would it make more sense to do something like what the Watergate commission was? Just do it in Congress. Don't worry about them. The speaker could do that. Yeah, something like that, I think, is an option. Again, I don't want to let the Republicans off the hook or do their job for them. I think we have to give them the opportunity to do the right thing and do their job. But if they don't, uh, there are options. And you know, a commission that's bipartisan, I think, is important. I think it is important that we have some folks to try to help us restore confidence and faith uh, around the country in this process. Uh, and the speaker does have some options available to her to, to accomplish that. Congressman Jason Crow from my growing up state of Colorado. You represent it well. Thank you very much, sir. Appreciate you giving us some time tonight. And joining me now is Matthew Dowd, founder of Country Over Party. And you've been brilliant on this. Uh, I have really enjoyed listening to you. been scared, but also scaring is caring. So I appreciate the things that you have said about democracy. I mean, you have said that there should be a presidential commission on democracy. I don't disagree with you. But if we can't even get a commission, and the president has said he's not going to do a blue ribbon commission of his own on January 6th, what else can be done to make sure that the full truth of January 6th comes out, in your view? Well, I mean, the first part of the thing is to demonstrate that this is the most important issue of our time. And I think it's actually the most important issue in the last 150 years since the Civil War, because we're at that point in our history where this could really fall apart. Our, Our grand experiment could completely fall apart. So I think the president could start with demonstrating every single day this is the most important issue of our time. I think appointing the vice president to be the point person on this. I had thought a cabinet person, but she's better. She's great. Mm -hmm. I think she'll do awesome. I think the Justice Department needs to weigh every single option that they can use to throw a wrench into what the states are doing. Every single option they can utilize in this. And, and, you know, you've been a Republican uh, in your career and, you know, so you've seen the party from the inside out. You know, I'm struck by the I can still remember I'm old enough to remember the way that people talked about Bill Clinton's election as being fraudulent. He didn't make it 50 percent. He was illegitimate. The drive to impeach him began the minute he got there. Congressman Barr, I believe his name was, of Georgia. Um, The same thing happened with uh, with President Obama, Uh, even calling him saying that he wasn't even born in the United States, you know, a whole movement that Donald Trump participated in. So this idea is not new that Democratic presidents, because it's black and brown people and people of color and younger people who vote for them, those aren't real Americans. So that that's not legitimate. 
Do you think that the one thing that might be able to erase that as a temptation is what, you know, you heard Congressman Crow say? If you could pass S-1 and say, you know, we're going to take this off the table. When you turn 18, everybody is registered to vote. The end. Same way you get a Social Security card. You're already registered because the government knows who you are. Just take the whole registration process off the table so that we start out with everybody already registered. Is that maybe a solution? Well, I mean, I've always been I mean, I did Democratic campaigns before I did George Bush and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I've always been an advocate of the more people vote, the better, because it legitimizes election. So let's make it as easy as possible, because the American public will believe in the result if more people vote. So I think that's, you know, should be the Republican and the Democratic position on this. But I think we're again, Joy, I think we're at such a perilous moment in this. And I'm I'm actually today more upset, not at the mendacity out of the mad king from mar-a-lago i'm more uh, upset about the people the sort of centrists and moderates uh who sort of want to preserve some tradition in this and say they're for democracy but really they don't fight for it in the way that we need them to fight for it. as you know martin luther king talked about this a lot and he yep. basically said the biggest problem was not the segregationists the biggest right. problem were americans of good conscience who didn't have the courage to stand up in the moment. They talked about it, but they didn't have the courage. And so to me, Joe Biden, and he, I know he's going to do this, and we all need to do this, need to put pressure on the people that say they for, for, for democracy. They need to walk up to the line and do something. Amen. Uh, thank you for saying that. I scream this at the TV all day long. And th- because it, I, I see Democrats speaking. I see Joe Manchin. I see Kristen Sinema standing there next to John Cornyn, who voted against the commission, as if everything is normal, as if this is fine, as if there's going to be some sort of backdoor meeting and they're all going to smoke a cigar and they're all going to come to an agreement on a bill. It's as if Democrats are not as alarmed by how close we are to losing our democracy as they should be because they're on the front lines of it. They can see it. They were there in the Capitol. Can you explain, do you understand why the sort of norm core democratic response is we'll just find some bipartisanship somewhere? I don't get it. Well, I I think Democrats, I mean, my view of it, Democrats have always been the last people to say that, that, that there's we need serious reform, serious structural change, serious stuff. They've always been like, we can make it work and we'll have bipartisanship and we'll do this while Republic, Republicans are, you know, throwing oil over the walls and launching <laughs> all, all kinds of uh, mortars at the thing. And the Democrats are like, we'll make it all happen. I think that at this point, if, if I mean, one, we need to have Democrats. The Democratic Party, to me, is the only party today that can stop this from happening. It's not a vehicle through the Republican Party. You're not going to change the Republican Party. It's gone. And I don't care what Liz Cheney says. She needs to get out of her delusion. It is gone. That is a party of autocracy and white supremacy. That's the Republican Party. So the Democrats right now are the only party to do that. And if we don't get people like Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin to stand up and say, filibuster, filibuster, they ought to research the history of the filibuster anyway, because the filibuster was used to keep people to keep keep people from having rights in this country. That's where we're at. And I think until Democrats understand this is a four alarm fire, it's a four alarm fire. And it's the most important issue of our time. They're not going to get infrastructure done. They're not going to get tax reform done. They're not going to get health care reform done. They're not going to get any of that if our democracy falls and voters don't have the rights to go to the polls. You know, what scares me the most, Matthew, that people like Kristen Sinema and uh, Joe Manchin 
actually are not on the side that we are on on this, that they are actually okay with the future that Republicans have in mind. That's what scares me. And I'm not accusing them of that. I don't know them personally. But until they convince me otherwise, that they really care more about democracy than hanging on to the filibuster, which has the history you and I both know, I don't know how to believe that they're on on the side of preserving democracy. I don't really know what the evidence of that is. I haven't seen it. I would like to see it. I would like someone to ask them, do you... Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. At KPMG, our people make the difference. It's not just something we say, it's what we do. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights, innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG, make the difference. Favor the continuation of our democracy, and what are you willing to do about it? That, I wish I, they'd come on this show, and I would ask them that. That's my only question. Uh, Matthew Dowd, no. I will, that, is, that is just, go on, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say they seem to be care, care about going to a subcommittee meeting yes. or going to some meeting in Washington like it's just the norm. We're not in yes. the norm. No, we're not we're in not. the norm. So we're not. You've got to give up on all of those pr- pr- uh, props that you thought you could use. It's over. The norm it's is over. over. Please listen to Matthew Dowd, uh, Senator uh, Matthew Dowd. Thank you very much. I appreciate you being here. Scary is caring. Still ahead on the readout. A new twist in the Matt Gates sex crimes investigation. That's still happening. Did the Republican congressman obstruct justice? And a huge development in the NFL's use of something called race norming, which assumed that black players started out with lower cognitive function than white and other non-black players. Yes, you heard that right. Plus. Absolutely, positively, it's wrong. It's simply, simply wrong. Simply wrong. President Biden reacted to new reports of abuses from the Trump administration. The details are tonight's absolute worst. The readout continues after this. The walls just might be closing in on Florida Congressman and Trump worshiper Matt Gates. Earlier today, NBC confirmed that federal prosecutors are looking into whether Gates obstructed justice during a phone call with a person who witnessed the potential sex crime he was allegedly involved in. Politico's Mark Caputo broke this story, writing, the obstruction inquiry stems from a phone call the witness had with Gates' ex-girlfriend. At some point during the conversation, the ex-girlfriend patched Gates into the call. It's unknown exactly what was said. The discussion on that call is central to whether prosecutors can charge Gates with obstructing justice. According to media reports, Gates is allegedly under investigation for having sex with a 17-year-old minor, paying for sex with women recruited online, possibly accepting paid escorts in exchange for political access or favors during a trip to the Bahamas, and having discussions about running a spoiler candidate in a Florida state Senate race. Meanwhile, Gates is growing increasingly isolated, according to sources who spoke to Politico. Gates's ex-girlfriend could sign an immunity deal by the end of the month. Joel Greenberg, Gates's former bestie, who pleaded guilty to sex trafficking of a minor, among other things, is cooperating with the feds. And there are signs that the woman he allegedly sex trafficked as a minor is cooperating as well. Gates issued an oddly worded statement in response to the news, quote, Congressman Gates pursues justice. He doesn't obstruct it. Okay, with me now is Mark Caputo, national political reporter, 
uh, national political reporter for Politico. And Mark, let's go into this phone call. Um, because it, there, there, I, I, you, you said it's, it's uh, potentially obstruction, and I'm wondering about witness tampering. Why would he be on the phone with somebody who is involved in the case he's in? Can you walk us through that timeline? Well, I can't. I, we understand that he was patched through. The problem when you talk to people who understand obstruction of justice is that if you are a suspect in a case, and if a witness is going to talk to prosecutors or talk to a grand jury, and you wind up talking to that witness, you got to be very careful about what you say. Because if it seems as if you're coaching the witness, if it seems as if you're trying to tell them how to get a story straight, if it seems as if you are suggesting to them what to say, shade the truth, well, you can be charged with obstruction, even if you also say, hey, look, I'm telling you to always tell the truth. I'm telling you to hire a lawyer and to make sure to listen to your lawyer. I'm telling you to cooperate. Even though... He's saying what you are thinking are contradictory things, what the obstruction of justice charge statute captures in its ambit is this idea that you might be suggesting person that they're changing their story. Now, to be very clear, uh, Congressman Gates, through his spokesperson, denies having done this, uh, and he's denied all of the charges. I I, I need to be be crystal clear about that. And I don't know what was mentioned on that call. I don't know if it had been recorded or not. Uh, if it had, that might make it a little more complicated, depending on what he said. Like all of us, we're kind of a blind men uh, describing elephant with our hands. We don't quite know what it is. The Fed have a lot of information, and they've talked yeah. to a lot of people. It looks like that investigation might slowly be coming uh, to a close or to a head. Uh, perhaps our sources say uh, to, to look in the July time frame. If uh, Gates is going to be charged, that'll probably be the most likely time they say uh, once all of the evidence is gathered, Gates's ex-girlfriend is kind of that final piece to fall to help supplement what appears to be a record of evidence that might not be enough to stand on its own and would be need to be supplemented by testimony of other witnesses, uh, such as ex-girlfriend, this one on the phone, uh, and Joel Greenberg. Well, I'm, not, I'm not sure your Zoom connection is the best, so hopefully people can understand what you're oh, saying. I'm going to try. Oh, let me try one more time. Yeah, you, you, we're, we're not getting the best uh, connection here. But um, at this point, Gates is going around the country with the QAnon lady as if nothing's wrong. He's acting like it's all good. Obviously, she's his ally and the QAnon, weirdly enough, likes him, even though he's being accused of the thing that's supposedly central to their argument about the world. Um who are his allies at this point? The governor, um, who, you know, there's a big political piece about how close they were, about how in a lot of ways he helped to build DeSantis, that his political alliances, his donors, um, that he's advised DeSantis. You know, he's been very instrumental in DeSantis's rise. DeSantis has been pretty quiet about him. He's been too busy, you know, vetoing mental health care for the survivors of the Pulse nightclub and signing anti-trans bills uh, for kids in school and doing stuff like that. Um, are they still allies? Who are his allies, Gates? That's a good question. Gates pretty much is, is right, kind of that, that farthest right corner of the conservative movement. From what we gather, there, there hasn't been a, a really close relationship between Gates and DeSantis for some time. Uh, DeSantis has kind of grown into his own and gone his own way. Interestingly enough, DeSantis is being uh, bandied about as a potential presidential candidate. And Gates is on this tour with Marjorie Taylor Greene and has mused about running for president as well. That would be, uh, simply speaking, that would be one hell of a matchup that we would see uh, in Florida and nationwide if those uh, two politicians, one-time allies, don't know if they're not allies anymore. They're, they're certainly uh, not, not enemies uh, if they wind up running against 
As if Florida needs more shame. Uh, Mark Caputo, thank you very much. Really appreciate you. And still ahead, the NFL says that it will end its racist policy of assuming black players have lower cognitive function. Yes, race norming is a thing. And we're going to get into it next. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. The NFL has pledged to ditch the use of so-called race norming, a eugenicist-sounding term for a racist and discredited practice. When evaluating dementia claims made by former players in the league's concussion settlement, it assumed black players started out with lower cognitive function than white and other non-black players. This made it harder for black retired players to show a deficit to qualify for a payout, which can be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. The announcement comes after two black players filed a civil rights lawsuit over the use of race-based benchmarks. Now, all claims previously made under the concussion settlement will be reopened and reassessed without the discriminatory practice. The NFL, though ending its use of race norming, quite notably did not apologize. Joining me now is Jamel Hill, contributing writer for The Atlantic and host of the podcast. Jamel Hill is unbothered and my friend. Um, Jamel, when I first saw this this. The headline and just the like subhead, I assumed that this was some held over practice from like the first decade of the NFL that got carried over. That apparently is not true. No, it's not. And I think that's the part that is mind boggling is not the right word. It's upsetting. It's disgusting. It's a whole lot of other adjectives is that this is something that the NFL has regularly made a part of this settlement, like to base this off of something that is so abhorrent, um, that so gets to the core of some very historical practices and mistreatment that we've seen of African-Americans. And for this to be something that they would look up and say, oh, our bag. And if not for a lawsuit, they had no intention to stop. And, you know, it just it just goes on to show that the NFL, despite doing all this, a lot of times you have to pay attention to what they do and how they actually behave when it comes to addressing uh, institutional racism. You know, I'm thinking of the statement of Roger Goodell putting out last year after George Floyd uh, was killed, Black Lives Matter. And then they have this whole campaign, Inspire Change and all this other nonsense. When at the end of the day, somebody thought it was a good idea to base brain injury settlements off the fact that black men cognitively were just not on the same level or were inferior to white men. Somebody thought that was a good idea. Well, it's the same league that up until, you know, I don't know, probably my late teenage years, you rarely ever saw a black quarterback. Right. I feel like that this is a consistent thing with the way the NFL has thought about it. White man coach, white man 
right, should be, should, should, right, that black men should be on the line. Black men should be wide receivers. They're not quarterbacks. They're wide receivers. That kind of ethos, to me, is very NFL. It, that, does, that part of it doesn't surprise me. It just surprises me that they basically used eugenics from the early 20th century. Because the, aren't the major, I mean, what is the percentage of black players in the league? You're talking about, like, the vast majority of players, right? Yeah, you're talking about a league that's 70% black, and you couldn't be more right, Joy. I mean, the truth is, based off their track record, the NFL has long set the message that they care more about abusing black bodies than respecting black minds. Um, When you look at the fact that there's three black head coaches in the NFL, there's never been a majority black owner. They got their first black team president in 100 years. Okay, and we went through a very long period, as you just alluded to, of where there weren't or hardly any black coaches or or black people in leadership period in the NFL is because at the end of the day, they do not consider black men to be leaders of men. And I don't know how many different ways that they can show that. But this to me is just the latest example of something that is very on brand for this league that continues to try to insult all of our intelligence by pretending to care about issues of of equality and uh, about addressing some of these larger conversations that we're having in this country when clearly they don't. Yeah, they can call us when Colin Kaepernick has a, has a job um, uh, and a team. It, let's let's go on to because the, I feel like and you've been talking about this a lot because you, you're sort of you know sort of living through it. There has been this changing power dynamic I feel between in all the in, in all of the professional sports, right? Where you're seeing black athletes saying, you know what? Nope, we're going to use our voices. We're going to stand up on civil rights issues, on voting rights, and we're going to be very intentional about speaking the truth about our lives outside of the league. We're still able to be victims of police brutality. Our family members are still in the same victimhood. You know, we're going to stand up for the right to vote for black folks and being open about that. And now it feels like the backlash is coming. Let's talk about Naomi Osaka, because she's somebody who is heroic. She's, you know, one of the greatest athletes of, of our age, of her age, of her generation. She got fined $15,000 for not doing press. And then she backed out of the French Open. Tell us what's going on with her. And is this is this the, the tennis league, are they punishing her for being outspoken? What do you make of what's going on with her? Oh, there's no question that um, the, the intention was to put Naomi Osaka in her place. Uh, athletes being fine for not appearing at press conferences and not fulfilling media obligations is, is not a new practice. And they have done this in tennis before with other players. However, the part that people need to pay attention to is that it wasn't just the French Open officials who joined in to try to Uh, diminish and denigrate Naomi Osaka. It was all the heads of all the major tournaments, the U.S. Open and the Wimbledon and the Australian Open. They signed that letter in which the French Open warned Naomi Osaka that not only would she face more fines, but she could potentially face expulsion from other major tournaments. That, to me, is a very serious gauntlet that they are throwing. I mean, they're basically bringing a bazooka to a rock fight. You know, Naomi Osaka said that she was willing to pay the fine. And I think they should have just left it there. And instead, they decided that that wasn't good enough. They had to make sure that Naomi Osaka knows who runs the sport. But I tell you what, Joy, they messed around and found out. (laughs) Because she's not at the French Open. 
Yeah, and, and that means the French only, Open is going to get a lot less views. It's going to get a lot. It's going to get a lot less clicks. And she's she she can meet out her own kind of punishment. This was a little bit of her statement. She said, "The truth is that I have suffered long bouts of depression." This was her statement since the U.S. Open in 2018, and I have had a really hard time coping with that. I've even I'm often wearing headphones as that helps dull my social anxiety. I do feel like the rules are quite outdated in parts, and I wanted to highlight that. Um, so she's somebody who was dealing with, men, with 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 you know anxiety, and they didn't step forward to help her. But let me play some what Venus Williams. Um, no, I'm sorry. Well, let me not play Venus. Let me let you talk about Serena Williams being supportive of her and Venus Williams statements in support of her as well. Well, I mean, here's the thing. Naomi Osaka, I'm sure adding to her anxiety, um, because as she alluded to in that statement that you read, is that a lot of these issues started to occur when she beat Serena in the U.S. Open in 2018. And if anybody recalls that moment... It was uh, really uncomfortable and it was bad because everybody wanted Serena to Williams to win the U.S. Open. She mm-hmm. didn't. Naomi Osaka beat her and people started to boo Naomi Osaka. This should have been the grandest moment of her career. And it wasn't. And on top of the uncomfortable, unsettling dynamic of upsetting an icon that you have grown up watching. Now she has to deal with a certain amount of, of backlash. And so, you know, what she's talking about is something that, unfortunately, a lot of athletes more than we would know actually go through. Everybody isn't born to sit through press conferences with dozens of reporters, you know, shouting questions at you and wanting to know everything about you. And she has talked about this before in the past, long before this moment, about how these are uncomfortable environments for her. And so to me, it seems like there was a opportunity to have a workable solution and the French Open abandoned that. Because I don't know if they've heard of something, really strange concept, Joy, it's called a pool reporter. They could have also used that. Right. They use them in the White House all the time. Right. Is that Hello. why not assign a reporter to Naomi Osaka, get That's her right. response after a couple of matches, distribute them to the rest of the reporters so she doesn't have to face that intimidating room. But unfortunately, she's seen firsthand how yep. the tennis media and how a lot of media have treated the Williams sisters their entire career. So can you blame her for not loving these environments? Oh, don't get me started on the tennis media. Growing up, I watched te- I watched tennis media as black players, including the Williams, especially them, were described as almost brute force while the white players were using their intelligence and their minds. Oh, tennis media is, they've never had a reputation that they should be proud of in terms of the way they've treated black players. Uh, I don't know I, who the brother is. Who's, uh, go on, sorry. No, I was going to say, think about this, Joe. I don't know if you remember this press conference, but somebody had the nerve to ask Serena Williams if she was intimidated by Maria Sharapova's looks. They Come on now. It. It's, come on now. Come, come. This you tells know. me, uh, hello. Who was the brother who said human zoo, the, the NFL, the NBA player who said it's a human zoo? You could apply that across the board to the way that uh, black players are treated across these leagues. Jamel Hill, you were the one person I want to talk to about this tonight. Thank you so much for making the time. All right. And up next, you. if you're keeping, thank you. If you're keeping a list of the number of ways in which Trump's DOJ abused its power, well, stick around. You can compare it against our list, which just got a little bit longer. Next on tonight's absolute worst. Don't go anywhere. During his four years in the White House, Donald Trump waged an all-out assault on the rule of law. Here's a brief refresher. He politicized the Justice Department by pushing frivolous investigations into debunked allegations for his own personal benefit. He obstructed the Russia probe in 10 different ways, which were all documented in excruciating detail in the Mueller report. 
He trafficked political smears from a foreign country and then pressured the DOJ to legitimize those smears through his those smears through his personal lawyer. He openly attempted to influence the outcome of federal trials, including in the case of Roger Stone, who was found guilty of multiple felonies. And then he abused the system of presidential pardons, bypassing the DOJ to reward his friends and accomplices who faced serious prison time. Oh, and did I mention his systematic effort to undermine and discredit the American system of free and fair elections? That led to a violent attempt to steal the election on January 6th that included white nationalist mobs flying Trump and Confederate flags, hunting the Speaker of the House and looking to hang Trump's own vice president, Mike Pence. And for all of those reasons, Trump is and will always be the absolute worst. But we continue to learn of new abuses by what was arguably the worst presidency in U.S. history, including the Trump administration's war on the press. The New York Times reports the Trump Justice Department secretly seized the phone records of four New York Times reporters spanning nearly four months in 2017 as part of a leak investigation. And it should come as no surprise that those records were obtained in 2020 when the cover-up general, William Barr, was the attorney general. While the DOJ rifling through journalists' phone records is a flagrant attack on the free press, what they were reportedly looking for is just as troubling. And that is coming up next. Given wannabe autocrat Donald Trump's complete disdain for the free press in this country, it's no surprise that his Justice Department stooped low enough to seize the phone records of four New York Times reporters. But those records didn't pertain to a pressing national security matter or an imminent threat to the country. They were about former FBI director James Comey, who Trump decided was his enemy because he wouldn't do corruption for him. And we know that because of the timing of the seized records. And it coincided with an April 2017 article from those same reporters, an article about how former director Comey handled the politically fraught investigation of Hillary Clinton's emails. Apparently, the Trump administration was so intent on charging Comey with leaking to the press that they trampled over the First Amendment to find something on him, anything really that might be criminal. And The New York Times is actually the third media outlet that the Trump administration went after. Earlier this month, we learned that the Trump DOJ also obtained phone records from reporters at The Washington Post and CNN. Joining me now is Katie Benner, Justice Department reporter for The New York Times, and Paul Butler, Georgetown law professor and former federal prosecutor. Katie, I'm going to go to you first. Uh, we know that, you know, Donald Trump has long had this obsession with The New York Times. So when I first saw the headline, I'm thinking, you know, what is it that he, that he wanted from The New York Times? What do you want to scurry around in? But it's even worse in a lot of ways <clears throat> that he was trying to use these reporters' records, private information, as a way to try to get Comey. Um, do the dates line up here that, that the thinking inside the Times is that this was about those the stories about Comey's investigation of Hillary Clinton and attempt to frame him? Yeah, so that's what the reporting that we published yesterday shows. The the Justice Department letter to the reporters shows that records from that time frame were obtained. What they got were the call logs between the reporters' phone numbers and whoever else they would have spoken with during that time. Also keep in mind, this is part of a very long-running investigation into the former FBI director. James Comey came under investigation for potentially leaking information almost the moment that Donald Trump became president. You know, Comey was fired very soon after. And as report after 
report came out about Comey's relationship with the president, leaked memos about Comey's concerns about the president, and then stories like the one that the Times published that spring, you saw the administration, particularly President Trump, become very forceful about wanting to show that it was James Comey who leaked classified information for which he could be charged with a federal crime. That investigation, to our knowledge, has not been closed. Yeah, and it's still okay. So that investigation is still going, and I guess this is the the thing, Paul. You know, every administration has these leaks investigations. That you know, none of these administrations like leaks, and they've gone to varying degrees and gotten into various degrees of hot water for being aggressive about trying to root out the reporter sources. What should the current DOJ be doing to alter this? Because you know, President Biden came out and said this is unacceptable, not going to happen. What can be done to clean this up? To just follow the rules, Joy, by design, it's very difficult for prosecutors to get approval to seek records from journalists. Even before they go to a judge for permission, they have to follow the DOJ procedures that require prosecutors to first exhaust all other investigative steps. If they can't investigate the case any other way than by looking at phone and email logs, They're allowed to do that, but they're supposed to inform the news organization in advance so that there could be an opportunity to challenge it in court. There's an exception to that requirement of notice, but then the attorney general has to have a compelling reason to think there's a threat to national security or some other dire emergency. Eric Holder put these rules in place, but apparently and unsurprisingly, Attorney General Barr does not seem to have followed the spirit of these important rules. And, you know, and Katie, can can you just give us some insight into, you know, whether the reporting says how much of this was Trump and how much this was Barr? Like, who was the driver of this quest for reporters' emails, not just at the Times, but at these other outlets as well? From our past reporting, we know that President Trump was obsessed with leak investigations. He wanted to know why so much information out of his administration was making into the pages of newspapers and onto networks like your own, like CNN. And so we saw both Attorney General Jeff Sessions and Attorney General Barr pay special attention to these investigations. They personally briefed the president on them multiple times, we've reported. This is how important they were to the former president. So when you say how much of this was Trump and how much of this was the attorney general, it is really all stemming from Donald Trump. Yeah. And and how did, you know, just as a New York Times reporter, this obsession with the Times, I, I can still recall some of the interviews, the sort of interviews that get printed out where you see all of the ins and outs of what he said, where he's just like, yes, give me a good headline. There did seem to be a particular obsession with the Times. Did, 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 did you all, did you feel that inside of the paper that you were more the focus than almost anyone else? You know, it was his hometown newspaper. It was a paper that he paid attention to. He felt that reputations in the Times mattered as a New Yorker. Um, I think that all journalists, all reporters tried very hard not to make the story about themselves and tried as much as possible to ignore that kind of attention. Because at the end of the day, whether or not the president loves you or hates you, you still have to do your job. And I do have to ask you, is, 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 is there a demonstrable difference? Because there, I remember a lot of complaints about the Obama administration doing very aggressive leak mm-hmm. investigations, too. What, what is the material difference, in your view, between the way that these different administrations have pursued leak investigations? Was there something demonstrably different about the way the Trump administration did it? 
So to your point, the Obama administration did aggressively go after reporters' records, so much so that there were massive complaints. And as Paul just said, Attorney General Eric Holder actually had to change the policy. It's my colleague, Adam Goldman. He's had the misfortune of having his phone records seized now by two administrations, both Obama and Trump. Um, and so you're right. This is very aggressive behavior, and it was decried under Obama as well. One of the main differences, however, is that Trump was very openly hostile to the press in a way that really no other president before him had been. So it wasn't just the aggressive moves to obtain records and try to root out sources and try to root out leakers, which we've seen in the past. It was coupled with this idea that he wanted his supporters to believe the press, that the press was the enemy of the people. Yeah, absolutely. And, and he's basically a, a, a low-key autocrat, not even low-key, a pretty high-key autocrat. Um, let me change the uh, uh, topic just a little bit for you, Paul Butler, uh, because I'm so glad we had you on. I have to ask you about this Derek Chauvin situation. Um, prosecutors are seeking 30 years in the, for the murder of George Floyd. His defense is requesting probation, citing all sorts of stuff about his age and when he's going to have to be impressed. You know, as a, as a former police officer, it's going to be dangerous for him. Um, Chauvin is asking the court—this is part of it—is asking the court to look beyond its findings of his guilt to his background, his lack of criminal history, and his being a product of a broken system. Mr. Chauvin's defense is best described as an— and, and his offense is best described—this is his defense talking—as an error made in good faith reliance on his own experience as a police officer and the training he had received, not intentional commissions of an illegal act. I was—my, you know, the whole face was hot reading that. What do you make of this attempt to get him a light sentence, to get, let him walk, basically? That's what the defense wants. He's not going to walk. The judge has already found aggravating factors for giving Chauvin more time in the 12 years that the Minnesota sentencing guidelines call for. Some of those aggravating factors include that Chauvin committed the crime in front of children and that he treated Mr. Floyd with unusual cruelty. So, Joy, when the lawyer calls this a good faith effort, it sounds like Chauvin is still not accepting responsibility, which judges don't like, especially when a jury is found beyond a reasonable doubt that Derek Chauvin is a murderer. And, he, and he's saying he's a product of a broken system. Was it was it broken when he beat a 14-year-old and, and also leaned on his neck as well? I mean, his history is so full of violence that it's shocking to me that this defense attorney would try this. Is it, in your view, is the defense lawyer at this point hurting his case because he is trying to minimize a nine-plus-minute murder that everybody watched in horror? He's absolutely hurting the case. It sounds like he doesn't accept that the jury rendered a verdict of guilty. And, Joy, if there's anything that's broken about the system, it's that Derek Chauvin was allowed to remain a police officer when there have reportedly been at least 17 complaints against him, including another episode that he's now being prosecuted for by the federal government where he abused a 14-year-old boy, where he used excessive force against a 14-year-old child who he was trying to arrest. So the real thing that's broken about the system is that there was not enough transparency and accountability in the Minnesota Minneapolis Police Department uh, to get Chauvin off the force. If there had been yeah. that kind of accountability, George Floyd might still be alive. Amen, amen, amen. Katie Benner, Paul Butler, thank you both very much. That's tonight's readout.
On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore One Nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.